Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. It's uh, really great to have all of you joining us today, those of you who are regularly connected with our church and maybe some of you who aren't, those of you who are watching it live with us right now and those who will be joining us later. We're really glad that you've joined us and we're trusting that God is, is going to uh, speak something to us here today that we need to hear, understand, and respond to. I want to talk to you today about a subject that really is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And it's really uh, probably one of the most powerful things about Christianity and being a Christian. Things that really, really matter. Things that start here in our church and then go out from our church. So we're in 1 Timothy talking about uh, matters related to the church and the fact that the church matters. Um, and so we saw uh, in the very beginning that everything, and this really kind of sets the foundation for today, everything is built around love. The purpose of the commandments, the purpose of everything he says here is that we would love God and that we would love others. Okay, that was in chapter one. Chapter two talked to us about uh, some uh, differences between the roles of men and women in church. Chapter three told us about the qualifications necessary for those who would provide spiritual leadership for the church. Chapter four talked about as you serve other people, be an example of what it is that you're wanting to help them become. You got to do that. And today we're going to talk about family matters, matters that um, are part of the church family as well as how that connects with some family issues that we all would experience in our church. So let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now this is a Paul's letter to Timothy who was a, a younger preacher with some really big responsibilities, most likely in Ephesus. And um, he's just giving him instructions and, and insights about how to have this ministry. What I want to do, though, is, is jump down to verse number 21 and start and have this be the, the foundation for the rest of our message here today. Verse number 21, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is kind of a, a summary statement. He's been, he's been talking about things we're going to look at, and then he summarizes, or, or, or a sort of a, not even so much a summary, but a principle that we need to, to apply. He says this, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. So he's, look, in front of all these witnesses, God is witness, the Lord Jesus Christ is witness, so the angels is witness. So this is kind of important then, probably, huh? I want you to get it. I want you to pay attention to this, Timothy. He says, that you observe these things, the things we're going to look at, without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. I think we all kind of get the gist there, right? In other words, these things should apply to everybody equally, okay? Um, the word prejudice is, is, uh, literally means prejudgment, okay? Because we're going to talk about some issues and, and where people are at, and so we need to deal with things without prejudgment. In other words, this idea of prejudice is when an opinion is formed before the facts are known. Now, none of us would ever do that, right? Don't we have a tendency to do that? I bet you, you know, I could today, if we wanted to, I could show you a picture of different people in the public realm and attribute some statement to them, and it would be easy to be prejudiced, wouldn't it? 
Okay? Uh, so opinions form before the facts are known. He says, we, we don't do that with each other. We are not to do that with each other, okay, in the church family. And then he says, without partiality, doing nothing with partiality. And partiality, this comes from a word, you know, the old balancing scales, right? Where you had, you know, you'd put a set weight on one side and then you put the other and, and you'd weigh things like that, the balancing scales. This word partiality uh, referred to the idea of tipping the scale. In other words, maybe attaching weight, extra weight or something before you actually put on what you're going to weigh. So you're already tipping the scales in the favor of whatever direction you want it to do. Now, we would never do that with people, would we? Yeah, we do, don't we? I could do the same thing today. I could show you pictures, right? And statements. And, and you would, you know, have a positive feeling. You, the scales are already tipped in your mind and in your heart, okay? But Paul is telling Timothy here, when it comes to being the kind of family God wants us to be, we ought not tip the scales. We shouldn't arrive at our opinions before we know the facts. And we shouldn't be tipping the scales in the favor of anything before we know the facts. All right, so very, very important. So um, it's interesting that the rest of the Word of God talks about this. Um, in the book of Acts, remember, most of you know this, but, but some of you who are watching may not have heard this or, or be aware of this, and that is that uh, the Jewish people had been given the law of God. They had a special covenant relationship with God. And as we look through the Old Testament, which is the, old, the Jewish scriptures, uh, we find time and time again that they were supposed to declare this to the world. They were supposed to be a blessing to the whole world. They were supposed to show this forth. But the Jewish people, this is a, a big picture statement, doesn't mean every one of them, but the Jewish people in general began to see themselves as more special than everybody else, more important than everybody else. And they began to, exactly what we talked about, they were prejudiced against anybody who wasn't a Jew, and they were very partial to anyone who was a Jew. By the way, just thought, could that happen to us with the church? Well, we could, we could fall into that trap, couldn't we? All right? Uh, we'll talk a little more about that later. But anyway, so when Jesus came and he preached the gospel, he came to the Jewish people. He was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures about being the Messiah for the Jews. He came and he did all that and he died for them. But when he died for them, he died for the whole world, didn't he? And he did a number of things along the way that hinted to the Jewish people that, you know what? This is bigger than you. This is going places beyond you. Okay, I'm doing something new. All right. And so, but the Jews didn't get that, and so it was hard. But here we have Peter who believed in Jesus. He was the one who, who recognized who Jesus was early on, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that was his declaration. And, but here's Peter preaching, and this is like eight years after Jesus rose from the dead. And he's preaching to the, to the uh, God sent him to some Gentiles. And he can't. That was hard for him. He says, no, I don't do that, God. And God says, well, I'm the one telling you to do it. Go do it. So he goes and does it. He preaches to them, and they come to faith. They come to believe in Jesus. The Gentiles, you know, these people that, that Peter was prejudiced against. Not because he was a bad person. It's just how he saw life. And so this is what he says. He says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. God deals with every human being, what? 
on equal basis. All right, so this, when, when Paul's telling Timothy, don't be showing prejudice or partiality, he's saying, you need to look at this the way God looks at things. This is a, a core value, we might say, of God and how he interacts with people. All right? Now, this goes back to the Old Testament even. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says to, um, uh, in the law there, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. <laughs> takes a bribe. We all know what a bribe is, right? It's a payoff. It's, okay, yeah, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I don't want to do this, so maybe I can, if I give somebody some money, right, uh, that can happen. I mean, Dave, you would, you would hopefully haven't experienced that, but in your position, someone could offer you a bribe, right? Of course, we know you, you wouldn't take it. Um, but can you imagine the idea of trying to bribe God? Seems kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? But at the same time, do you realize that People do that, and maybe you and I have done that, because we can think, well, I, yeah, I know I didn't do this, or I did that was wrong, you know, but I'll make up for it by what? I'll do something extra good, or I'll give some money, or I'll whatever, and maybe God will let me off the hook. Well, what is that? That's like paying a bribe, isn't it? Well, God isn't bribed. Now, this is interesting, because this has a connection with the gospel message for us, and here's the deal. That every one of us, every one of us as human beings, have sinned against the Holy God. We've all done things God said not to do, and we've all not done things God said to do, and we've all done things with attitudes that God said we ought not to have, all of those things. We've all failed. We've all fallen short, and that, that separates us from God. And, and what can we do? Well, what do some people do? They say, well, I'll join the church. I'll become a member of the church. That'll appease God. They're offering God a bribe. God doesn't take bribes. Well, I'll get baptized. Well, same thing. Or I'll, I'll give some extra money. I'll be generous to the poor. And all these things, by the way, are good things, aren't they? They're all good things. But none of them fix this problem, the fact that we have sinned against a holy God. Okay? And there's nothing we can do. There's no bribe we can pay that will solve that problem. We are separated from him. If we die in that condition, we go to hell, the Bible tells us. This is what Jesus said. Okay? Uh, but here's the good news about this. Because God doesn't take a bribe, what he does is he treats everybody equally, doesn't he? We are all in the same boat, and he loved how many of us? All of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So he sent his son, because he loved us, he sent his son in the world, who lives a perfect and sinless life, dies on the cross, paying the penalty, for our sins, rises again from the dead, and now offers to us, to me, to you, to all of you, to every human being who has ever lived or ever will live, that if they will acknowledge that they have sinned against the Holy God and need a Savior, and place their trust in Jesus, that God forgives every sin, and he, he gives us eternal life, and he moves in. He moves into us somehow, some way, and begins working on us from the inside out in good ways. But understand, that's for, for who? For his special chosen people? No, for everyone. So the fact that God cannot be bribed is a good thing. Because he interacts with all of us the same way. Offers us the same gift. And we all receive it the same way by believing in him. So, 
Because God is this way, then Paul tells Peter, excuse me, tells Timothy, we need to be this way. When we interact with people in our church family, we should not be prejudiced. We should not show partiality. We should interact with people the same way that God does on these things. All right, so this idea, this, this summary statement, every person in our church family is equally valuable before God and deserves to be treated that way. Can we let that soak in? I mean, that would be enough to say if we could just take that and chew on that today, right? But I'm a preacher, so I can't let that be enough said. I have to say more, okay? But there is more here that we want to look at. But every person in our church family is equally valuable before God and deserves to be treated that way. In other words, a genuine love and concern for all. Everyone who enters our doors here. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and work our way through the things that he's talking about. Chapter 5 here, verses 1 and 2. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Well, what's the deal here? Well, what we see here is this, that older men... Older women, younger men, younger women. Now, does that pretty much include everybody? Right? Okay. Uh, but that's not the issue in our church family. It's not the fact of whether you're an old man or a young man. It's not the fact whether you're an old woman or a young woman. That's not the issue. The issue is that you are family. We are family in the church, Right? And so what's he say? Do not rebuke an older man. Don't speak harshly to an older man, but exhort him as a what? Father. Okay? Treat him like you would show respect to a father. Now, just let me say, um, I understand that um, people sometimes come from dysfunctional families. And so these kinds of instructions are sort of hard. So don't so much think about this just in your family, but think about the way a family ought to be. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. And so we want to treat older men with this, this respect, encourage them. If, if we have to talk to them about a problem, we still speak to them respectfully because they're our family. We treat them like a father and older women like mothers and younger men like brothers. It was my brother. And, and then the younger women as sisters. And he says this with all purity, right? So he's saying, Timothy, you've got to make sure that as you interact with the younger women that there's no question about what your intents are here. Okay, and your motivations. You need to make sure that is covered. So the, the, the uh, direct uh, thing here is, is how we treat each other. But so what does this mean for us? How do we uh, have a broader application, which is what we want to do with the word. We want to know what's it say. Okay, now how does it apply in our lives? And I think there's a bigger statement here, and that's this, that every person in our church family deserves to be treated with respect. With respect. They are what? Valuable. How valuable are they? Well, God loved them, sent his son to die for them. God moved into them, I mean, right? I mean, it's, am I more valuable than someone else in the church family? Now, we've all been affected by sin. 
Right? We've already established that. And sin has this way of working in our lives. And who does sin, actually the leftovers of sin, right? Because when we got saved, God changes fundamentally deep down inside. But we've got all these leftover ways of thinking, all these leftover ways of feeling, all these habits, approaches to life that we're trying to work our way out of. Well, all of those things that sin brought into there, who does it tell you is the most important person in your life? I'm actually asking you guys who are here. Who does it tell you is the most important person in your life? You are the most important person in your life, right? And, and we kind of, you know, we see that, get that, but God is telling us to move beyond that to where we look at everybody as just as important as we are. In fact, that would go back to love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. So every person in our church deserves to be treated with respect because in the church, they are family, and, and how we, when someone is family, it should change how you deal with them. Again, I understand if you have dysfunctional issues in a family, that makes this hard. But it should change the way we treat each other. And I want you to know something that not only should it change the way we treat each other, but when we let it change the way we treat each other, it changes people. Because I guarantee you that a lot of the people who show up here every week are not respected in the world. They are not valued in the world, right? They are used by people in the world and they walk in these doors and you and I treat them like they are as valuable as we are and worthy of respect, deserving of respect. What does that do for them? It, it brings a little healing to them. It encourages them and maybe strengthens them to go back out into that world that, that works against them, right? Because when you treat someone as valuable, sometimes people have a hard time seeing themselves that way. But you continue to do it and treat them that way, it will start to change them. How, maybe there's hope, they think, right? And, and they comment, because these people here love me and value me. By the way, do you think that might be why... Uh, that when Jesus came, that a lot of the people who congregated to him, flocked to him, were the down and outers? The ones that the rest of the world had rejected? See, because Jesus didn't, and it drew them to him. And that's what people need to experience in our church family. All right, so let's go to verse 3. and we'll read through a bunch of verses here talking about widows in the church. And before I do that, let's just talk about um, culture here a little bit. Um, for widows... In, in the day that this was going on. You know, there's no social security. There's no pensions. Uh, there's no IRAs. I mean, uh, there's no government assistance. Anything like that. And so when a, a woman, um, and by the way, also for the most part, women weren't able to go and to work like a man was. Sometimes women had businesses. Lydia, we know in the Bible, had business. But the point is, for most women, there was no way, good way to go earn a living income. And so when her husband died, right, if she had children, if she didn't have children, when her husband died, she was in a hard place, okay? And so widows, to known to be a widow, that was a, wow, that's a difficult place to be. It's still difficult today to be a widow. It is, right? Certain weights come on you, um, the loneliness, all those things. But where we're at in the society, many, many widows are much better off than they were here. Okay? But this is still important for us to understand. So let's work our way through. 
He says, honor, in verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. Well, wait a minute, you're either a widow or you're not, right? Well, no, he's talking about a certain widows in the church because in these days we see it back in Acts chapter 6 happening and, and we um, hear about it elsewhere that when a, a, a woman lost her husband, became a widow, as we're going to see if she had nobody to take care of her, no way of making ends meet, Right? There were certain instructions. And so sometimes those widows would be taken on by the church. The church would begin to provide for them. And then those widows would serve in the church. Okay, that was what they did. Um, and so when Paul talks about who are really widows, that's what he's talking about. The, people, the widows who we would put on this list in this ministry, where the church cares for them and they serve in, in the church. All right, so honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them, the children and grandchildren, first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So if a widow has children, right, or grandchildren, they were to care for her, not the church, okay? By the way, just let me say this now before I forget to say that what I'm talking about here does not, uh, reference whether or not the church would help a widow from time to time. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about taking on a role where now we are supporting this widow and she is now serving in the church. All right, so if, you have, if there's family to take care of her, and that principle shows up throughout this passage, if there's family, they should take care of her. Verse 5, now she who is really a widow, the one who has nobody, and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. All right? That would be the response of a godly widow. I have nobody to care for me. Who do I look to? I look to the Lord. I trust in God to provide for me and to care for me. All right? What other options would she have? Well, the other options is she could go out into the world and connect with people who would take care of her for a price as well, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Get involved with men who would take advantage of her. Uh, and so that's what the next verse refers to. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. That's a, that's a spiritual dead direction to go. But we, so we have this distinction he's starting to make about a widow who trusting in God. Verse 7, and these things command that they may be blameless. When we were in chapter 3, we established blameless is not perfect. Blameless means there's nothing there that you would say, wow, this disqualifies this person. Right? Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Man, that's a powerful charge, isn't it? So if we have members of our family, as our human family, um, our biological families and, and marriage families, if we do not make it a point to take care of those people, we're acting as though we don't believe God. We don't trust God. We aren't doing what God says. We live like an unbeliever. He says, you're worse than an unbeliever because you know better. All right? So again, families should be meeting these needs whenever possible. Then he gives some more guidance. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. And this idea, wife of one man, I don't, do not believe it means she can only have been married once. 
I think that it's the same thing as over in the qualifications for pastors, that there's no question about her faithfulness to her husband, right? She's a one-man woman, okay? And so she could have had a husband die previously. That's not the point. Verse 10, she needs to be well-reported for good works if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. And so I don't necessarily know that that's a list of requirements that you have to have had children. That isn't the point, and that's out of your control. But the idea is you need to be the kind of person who has done good works. If you've had children, you've cared for them, you know. If you have people, you, you, you show them hospitality. Uh, you serve others. These are the kinds of widows that he's saying would qualify to be put on the roll for the church to care for. That's what he's talking about here. Which makes sense because once they're put on the roll, they now served the Lord in the church. But refuse the younger widows, and refuse means don't put them on the roll. Refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And let me just say to you, sometimes trying to figure this stuff out, exactly what it means, is, is, is tricky because we don't live in that day. We don't know the specific circumstances. But here's what these words mean. He says, the younger uh, women, he says, uh, you know, may they need someone to care for. So they, you sign up, you put them on the roll, and now they're serving in the church. But the reality is they still have a desire that they would want to be married. Part of that is a sexual desire. That's what that word wanton includes, okay? And so here they are. They have yielded their life to God. Yes, I'm going to trust you. The church is going to care for me. I'm going to serve the Lord here. I'm giving my life to this. And then they begin to, you know, want to marry. They, they see somebody. They meet somebody, all this kind of stuff. And it's a, wait a minute. So Paul is saying we don't want to put them in that position. Don't put them in that position. Um, this isn't a we'll pay you till you can find a husband kind of thing. All right? So let's continue. Verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. He says, therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Some have turned away from the Lord. Apparently they were young women that they had brought in, uh, young widows, I should say, and um, put on the roll, and then who had turned away. And he's just saying, these young widows, they are, it's just not a good place to put them. It's not a good situation for them to be in. Much better if they would marry. And by the way, marriage, again, in this day and age, was in many times much more practical much more pragmatic. We think of it in the terms of romance, right? You got to find someone. But back then it was much more practical. And so the idea is, yes, they could probably find someone to marry, someone who would marry them. All right. Verse 60. Again, he reinforces this. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Okay. This small group of people, the elderly women who are widows, the church needs to take care of them. Wow. Like I said, that doesn't happen nearly as often in our settings as it used to. And uh, again, they would be put on the roll and then they would serve the Lord. They would work in the church and do those things. 
So, so what does this mean for us then in our day and age? How do we apply this? Well, I think that if we have widows who are in the description, like Paul says, that, that they have no way to make it and they have no family to help them, then we do it. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility to help them make sure that they are cared for, okay? But I think it extends beyond that. It was widows in their day. What is it in our day? I, I, I don't want to be dogmatic here and say things, but it, it's anybody who finds themselves with a genuine need. And so an application here, secondly, every person in our church family with genuine needs deserves to be cared for. Okay, if there's anybody in our church family who has a genuine need, and that word genuine is important, a genuine need they deserve to be cared for. Now, the church is not a social service agency. can't be. That's not what the church is about. It's a, we are a, a, a people who have been called by God to, to carry the gospel to the whole world. And yet, at the same time, we're also family, aren't we? And what does Paul say here when we think about the widows? Who should care for the widows? First, family. That's right. And so when someone becomes a part of the church, they become family. And so when someone has a genuine need, uh, then we should do our best to take care of them. Are there any guidelines for this? Absolutely. There are here, right? The first, the need has to be legit. There has to be no other way to meet this need. Uh, elsewhere, I think it's in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, I can't remember, but he, Paul says, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. So if someone is not willing to do what they can, we aren't going to care for them. We aren't going to provide for them. Uh, and so there are guidelines. But the idea is if we have someone in our church family who has a genuine need, as Paul says, really widows, right? Someone who has a real, they, they have no way to meet this need, then we do have an obligation to come together and figure out how do we help this person. And that might be a little bit of help, might be a lot of help, okay? But that's what, as family, that's what we should do. All right. Uh, let's continue. Oh, it's back up to me real quick. So this idea of guidelines, yeah, two, two questions. Are there others who can help? Okay, that's important. And, and nowadays, once again, in our society, many times the government is involved in that, right? It's available. But that is there any way, uh, other way to get help? And secondly is this, is, is if we do this, will we really be helping? Because there are times that you can help someone and it doesn't help them. And that's sort of the same thing he said here with widows, right? Women and certain widows in certain situations, you do this, it's not going to help them. It's going to work against them. Same thing with sometimes people who have a need. Sometimes, sometimes people need to struggle with a need, don't they? To struggle with a need, to, to get where they need to go in their understanding. But can I say to you that, that we as Christians ought not... Um, if we hear that someone has a need, we go, okay, the guidelines, the guidelines, the guidelines. Right? No, when we hear someone has a need, we ought to be, oh man, that's hard. I wonder if there's something we can do. Is there something we should do? We have a heart for it, right? That's where we start. I would much rather, and I think it's, it's, it's a, a Christian way of doing things, I would much rather make a mistake helping somebody than I would not helping somebody. Does that make sense? You know, I'd much rather, rather do that. Um, 
Because can't we become skeptical really quick? <laughs> I mean, I don't know which about the, you guys who are just here, but all of us, anybody watching, uh, we can uh, become skeptical. Uh, I've seen it. I've, I've experienced it in my own self. I've got to try to catch myself. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when it describes God's love and the kind of love we're supposed to have, one of the things it says, it says that love believes all things. Sometimes I don't know if I like that. But the idea is if I have a brother or sister in Christ who's talking to me and they say, here's where I'm at, here's what's going on, I, I am not to be in my mind go thinking, yeah, right. Um, in other words, this doesn't mean we're to be gullible either, but we believe until we can't anymore. We start off. What is our starting place for someone, those we love? We believe them until we, we can't. Okay, and sometimes that can happen. All right. So every person in our church family with genuine needs, needs uh, deserves to be cared for. So let's go to verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And by the way, that statement probably is from Jesus. They're pretty sure. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Um, this idea of elders, we talked about this two weeks ago, but the elders are what we would refer to as pastors. Okay? Uh, they weren't necessarily employed and they aren't today. Pastor Dave and I are both elders in our church here. Uh, but you don't have to be employed to be an elder, but you do have to be qualified to be an elder. And so it's, it's the elders, and, and we've, for those of you who are part of our church family, you know, we're, we're looking at this and, and considering going to a larger number of elders uh, to lead our church, which I think, I believe that's where God will lead us and will be a good thing for us. But so the elders who rule well, they're, they're overseeing the church. Those who are overseeing the church, he says they should be counted or considered worthy of double honor. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, this word that's translated honor uh, does mean what we think of as honor, right? Honor, respect, but it means more than that. It also includes the idea of pay, all right? And so the idea is considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean? By the way, so sometimes when uh, someone speaks someplace and when they're done, what, they're given some money and it's called a what? Anybody know? An honorarium. See, it's an honoring uh, but includes pay. And so what he says here is that, that elders who oversee well and faithfully should be considered worthy of double honor. And I think that would mean that, yes, they are honored and respected for the, what they do in our lives. Uh, but then he says those, especially those who work at the teaching and the preaching, are worthy of being paid. Now, why do I think it means pay? Well, because the very next verse, 18, he talks about what? Paying. Okay, the labor's worthy of his wages. And so he's saying in the church that this is what we ought to do. Those who are ministering to us, those who are teaching us the word of God, those who are overseeing the matters of our church, those who are caring for our souls are worthy of double honor. And if we can pay those who, let me back up. Acts chapter six, we see the apostles saying, you know, we need to focus on the word and prayer, Right? 
And so I think the same idea. Some of your elders are going to be those who are going to focus on the word and prayer. And what we want to do is we want to free them up to be able to do that. Okay, and so that's the idea of paying. Then he says, again, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. That goes back to the Old Testament law and is trying to uh, make sure that those who are serving us are treated properly. Okay? Uh, and we don't want just somebody getting bent out of shape with one of them and then making an accusation and then we all get up, all bent, worked up on that, right? It's the idea of make sure, let's, let's follow a procedure. Let's make sure we do right by this person who's being accused this person who has served us well. And then if they do sin, though, very clear, verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Um, so the sin of an elder is, typically ends up being public at some point, doesn't it? And so you have to rebuke them in front of all. And how, why does that make all fear? Well, we're not showing any partiality or prejudice, are we here? Nobody gets off. We're all accountable. Okay? We're all responsible for how we live. But so how do we then apply this beyond uh, this situation? And I think this is the case, that every person in our church family who faithfully, again, not perfectly, but who faithfully serves us on God's behalf deserves honor and right treatment. If somebody serves you on the Lord's behalf, shouldn't we honor them? Shouldn't we treat them properly? Um, think about this. Now, it's, it's not happening so much right now, <laughs> but when we're meeting normally, right, you pull into the parking lot and you see someone there greeting you, smiling at you, saying hi to you, okay? Uh, you come in the front door and there are people who are there on purpose early because they want to say hello and let you know that they are glad that you are here. Uh, you come in, you smell the coffee. Well, somebody made the coffee, didn't they? Somebody brought the refreshments. Uh, there are people standing in the foyer at the, the different tables to help you and to serve you, to get you the information you need or help you figure out what's my next step of following the Lord. There's people there doing that. There are people here who make it a point to go around and greet people and let them know that they are glad that they are here. They're showing that mutual respect that we talked about earlier. Uh, there are people who have programmed the heat so it comes on, the air conditioning so it comes on. Um, there are uh, the band who comes and worships, or worship, they do come and worship, comes and leads us in worship, uh, the tech guys who, uh, you know, make sure it sounds good, make sure you can see the words on the screen, um, the, ch the people who welcome you and your children downstairs and then take your children and love them and teach them, the ones who take the babies and care for them, uh, I mean, so, so much, right? Somebody cleaned the bathrooms that week, you know, vacuumed the floors, made sure somebody, uh, somebody like this guy right over here, you know, makes the bulletins and he puts them out so perfectly neatly on these things. Uh, um, but all these people, right, who are serving us, and, you know, the person who gets up and teaches us or preaches uh, that day, all these people are, are caring for us on behalf of the Lord. They're serving us. And that's just what was happening here. What about all the stuff that goes on when we're not here? For those of you who are watching here today, right, we have two guys who come in and they run the cameras and they do the switching. And we have some poor guy who has to sit in a tiny little room upstairs by himself mixing the sound so that you guys who aren't able to be here get a good experience with this. Uh, then all the people who pray for you every day, the people who call you up or send you an email 
or say something on Facebook to you, uh, the, the people who uh, come and help you when you have a need, people who bring meals. I mean, all the things that are happening out there. And the idea is we need to become more aware of that, more alert to it, and then make sure that we honor those people, if nothing else, just by how we think of them, how we pray for them, how we respond to them, okay? Uh, and so I think that this, this is a good application for us. Every person in our church family, well, this is the full thing, but anyway, who serves us, we should you know, treat them right. And then this is the overarching principle. Every person in our church family, or every person, back up one if you would, Anthony. Every person in our church family is equally valuable before God and deserves to be treated that way. What a difference. Isn't that a good thing in a church? Think about it, the part of a church. What does that mean? This, that we are, come and we enjoy this great thing. Now, just like the Jewish people came to believe that this was for them, right? This is for us. And, and man, what a difference. I don't know about you. I, I don't have to work in the world, but I'm still out there enough and interact with enough people that it's refreshing to be here with you, right? It's refreshing to have you here when we are here together. It just is. It's such a blessing. But it's so easy for us to start to believe it's for who? This is for us, not for all those people out there who don't get it. <laughs> so for us. But I would say to you that the blessings that God brings into our lives and that we experience as a church, I don't know if any of them are ever intended to be for us alone. I think God is doing something here in us that we might go out there so he can do something in the world through us. And what we have here is good. You know, what we have in the church is a great, great blessing. And I think it needs to go out the door with us. And what does that mean? How do we live this out? Okay, we'll see this statement here. Every person we have in our church family, and they're equally valuable for God. But when we go out in the world around us, we don't, you know, they aren't thinking that way. They, they're not church family. They're not thinking valuable for God. But let me tell you how we go out and live. Here's how we, we take this out in the world and live. Listen now, Anthony. Every person is equally valuable and deserves to be treated that way. Is that true? Is it true? I'm not asking do we feel like it's true. It is true. Every human being made in the image of God. Has sin messed with that image? Yeah, but made in the image of God. Um, When God created man, right in Genesis 1, it says very clearly that he made them in his image. Okay? I don't think it's a physical image. I think it's a consciousness image. image. It's a, um, a self-awareness image. It's, you know, it's like God in those ways. Um, but it says that he made man in his image. But then it says he made man in his image, male and female. Why? Well, because there's aspects of God's image that the man can't communicate. There's aspects of the image that the woman cannot communicate. It takes male and female to capture the image of God. And I want to say to you it's bigger than that. Because I want to say to you that it takes every person who has ever lived or ever will live to capture 
the image of God. And even then, he's infinite. He's beyond that. But so every human being that you meet day in and day out, no matter what sin is done in their lives, no matter how they've cooperated with sin or not cooperated with sin, there is something in them that reflects the image of God, that shows forth the image of God. And they are worth knowing somehow, some way. Does that change your perspective on how you look at people? It should. That's a biblical perspective. And so every person is equally valuable and deserves to be treated that way, which leads us to this first point. Go ahead, Anthony. Every person deserves to be treated with respect. Hmm. Even those people who say really stupid things on Facebook? (laughs) See, my bias is showing. I'm prejudiced already, right? (laughs) Yes, right? I got to tell you, I, well, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. So every person deserves to be treated with respect. As you and I walk out in the world and treat people with respect uh, because God is the one who who brought them into the world and and, uh, he's something there to know that's worth knowing. I guarantee you, you go through life like that, that's going to change your relationship to people. You know, it's that person at work that you can't stand. It's the neighbor who drives you bonkers. Whoever it is, right? Treat them with respect. Because I want you to think about this. You know how I talked about someone comes in this door and they experience here what they don't experience anywhere else? Same thing when you go out into the world. You take that light out there. Do you remember this story? Anybody watch the movie, The Lord of the Rings, or read the books? You remember Gollum? Despicable creature, right? But what was he? He was actually a man at one point in time, who had been corrupted by the evil power of this ring. And and you remember the two hobbits, Frodo and Samwise, trying to get to Mordor to get rid of the ring, and this creature begins following him because he wants the ring back. And Samwise has no use for him. He wants just to kill him, beat him up, be gone with him. But Frodo, who has been carrying the ring and feeling the weight of the ring the evil that's there, because they want to get rid of it. He's feeling that. He finds himself having compassion on Gollum. And if you remember in the story, he stops Sam from beating him and talks kindly to him and treats him with respect, and it changes Gollum. Do you remember that? Now, not completely, but Gollum starts to say he likes us. He, you know, he, Master likes us, and, and then he, because he, we see this struggle within himself with the evil, but he's, it's changing him because somebody has valued him. Somebody has cared about him. Well, let me ask you, do you carry the ring of evil in your life? I think we do in the sense that we've been affected by sin, haven't we? We know what that's like. We know the hurt and the pain and the difficulties with that. And so when we go out into the world, and even the person who we would normally think, I don't have any use for that person. Can you have compassion on them? Because they're that way because of what sin has done in the world and they need a Savior, the, the, the Savior that God who loves them sent for them. And, and so we need to go out and treat everyone with this respect and value every person, okay? So the second thing, every person with genuine needs deserves to be cared for. And we, I just don't have time to continue, but the idea is this I, I don't have the answers necessarily how we do that. I don't know, you know, how that all works. But I do know this, that the inclination of my heart 
as a Christian needs to be to care for people who have genuine needs. Well, but, but what about this? But what about that? But those are all can be legitimate things. But let me tell you what. It is when you are genuinely compassionate, when you genuinely care about these people's needs, that you earn the right to speak about the buts. That makes sense? Okay. All right, so we need to be those people out there. And the third, every person who faithfully serves us deserves honor and right treatment. And so really I'm thinking here primarily of the people, even right now we see in, in government who are trying. How would you like to be the one trying to manage the coronavirus? You know, I mean, I, I don't know that I agree with everything that's going on. But I, I know what it's like to have to be in positions like that. And, and whether we agree with their politics or don't agree with their politics, we agree with their decisions, we don't agree with their decisions, the idea, I think most people who are trying to deal with this are trying to do what they think is right. And they got all sorts of issues in the mix that we don't even know about. But here's where this shows up. How do you and I talk about these people? And how do we talk about it when we decide to make a post on social media? You know, I think that you and I ought to be seen, we as Christians ought to be seen as grateful people. Right? We're grateful for those who serve us. And we're going to speak well of them. Now, sometimes you may have to speak the truth in a conversation. I'm not saying we're in denial. <laughs> but the attitude... <laughs> I bet if I said to you, do you know any Christians who, whether in person or in social media, who come across as always harsh, always against something, always calling out people, always, could you think of somebody? What I want to say to you is that shouldn't be us. That should not be the way Christians are known. If we speak, the, well, we always ought to speak the truth, but if we speak to a specific truth, it always ought to be with what? Love. See, we ought to be a different people. But so, it's what we experience here and this mindset and this attitude we need to take out into the world around us because every person is equally valuable and deserves to be treated that way. Well, I'm sorry I went a little long here. But it's important. It really, really matters. And it's going to take a lot from us. It's going to take, I mean, it's not easy to go out into an evil world and live that way. It's going to take all that we have. So I'm going to ask our band to come back up at this point in time. And we're going to sing um, one more song, then we'll be done. Thank you for hanging in there with us. Uh, but this song is about being fully devoted to Christ. Understand that when we go back out into the world, uh, today, tomorrow, whenever we're able to go back out in the world, that we go out as Christians who have committed ourselves to Christ, and, and we are going to live this out. By God's grace, we are going to live this out. And we will be salt and light in a world that desperately needs to know Jesus. So thank you for uh, sticking with us here. And let's worship the Lord with our singing now.